You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Take your Bibles now. Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 995. As I mentioned last week, this epistle is the last extant or still existing letter of the Apostle Paul in our Bibles. As one commentator put it, it marks the final chapter of Paul's story. It can be considered Paul's testament and swan song. It was written while he was in prison in Rome, most likely sometime between the years 64 and 67 AD. It's during Paul's second Roman imprisonment then. You see, during his first Roman imprisonment, which we read of at the end of the book of Acts, Paul had a certain measure of freedom. He was under house arrest. Yes, he was chained to a guard, but he was able in that sense to have guests and visitors And it was a relatively comfortable imprisonment. He was then later released. And what we know is it would seem that he went then to the island of Crete, dropped off Titus, uh, to Ephesus, dropped off Timothy, went into Macedonia, likely even went to Spain. But at some point was arrested again, brought back to Rome. And this time it wasn't house arrest. It was imprisonment in a dismal underground dungeon. And as we know from this letter, he was awaiting his execution, his martyrdom. This is not surprising when we realize that the emperor at the time would have been Nero. And so we come to this last letter of Paul's, and we see it's a deeply personal letter, one that's written to the one he calls his beloved child, Timothy, who is likely still in the church in Ephesus at this time. But we have to remember, just as we saw with 1 Timothy, this was a letter not only written for Timothy's edification, but it is, in fact, God's word for the edification of the church in Ephesus and the church today. And so we come to it to be instructed by Christ from his word. So follow with me. We'll start there in verse 1 and read down to verse 5. Hear now God's holy word. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Amen. Let's pray together again. Lord Jesus, as the apostles cried out to you while you were on the earth, increase our faith. So we plead with you to increase our faith this morning 
through this, your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we, too, may live faithfully to you to the very end of our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you knew that you were going to die in a few months, what would you say or what would you write to those whom you were going to leave behind? What would occupy your thoughts and your concerns? Well, this was actually the situation of my brother-in-law's father a few months ago. His name's Jeff Clayton. And this is what he wrote to his family. I thought that I might need to write a note like this at some point. I just didn't know that after 11 years of battling prostate cancer, now would be that point. Because of my rapidly failing energy level and my rapidly rising PSA, among several other indicators, I've decided that weekly trips to the Duke Cancer Center are no longer doable. After consulting with my oncologists at both Duke and Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, I've withdrawn from the Duke clinical trial and will look at starting with hospice next week. You've heard me quote the following three verses many times. Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to die, to be. Matthew 6, 27, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Philippians 1, 21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, it looks like the number of the days ordained for me are starting to come to an end. My doctors are saying that I likely have two to six months left. I decided that I would rather spend the holidays with family and friends than traveling to Duke and undergoing clinical trial testing. So we are now applying Matthew 6.27 and looking forward to heaven. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2.9. I'm also looking forward to spending eternity together with all my Christian family and friends. Please keep following Jesus. That was the last four words. Please keep following Jesus. As the Apostle Paul was nearing his death, he had one great concern, that his spiritual children would persevere, that they would keep following Jesus, and that the gospel would continue to be faithfully proclaimed into the next generation. This was no small concern for the Apostle Paul, for there was opposition both from without and from within. Opposition from without, persecution is happening under Nero after the great fire that occurred in Rome in A.D. 64. Paul himself, the one who was a former persecutor of the church, was suffering much persecution in that Roman dungeon. But there's also opposition from within the church. False teachers will read in this very letter about Hymenaeus and Philetus who were saying that the resurrection had already occurred. The same concern exists in our own day. 
There is opposition from without, increasing hostility in our own country and all around the world against Christianity. Persecution is rising. And beloved, there's always a tide, a swelling tide of false doctrine that creeps into the church. And then there's this reality, that many ministers are not enduring to the end. A 2013 study states this, that 50% of ministers starting out will not last five years. And a study I read at the end of 2021, just a couple months ago, or less than a month ago, said this, that 38% of pastors have seriously considered quitting full-time ministry in the last 12 months. With all these things, we can wonder, how can God's gospel, how can God's people, how can God's ministers endure in their own generation into the next? Well, in 2 Timothy, in this letter, Paul addresses these concerns, and he shows the way forward for Timothy, for all ministers, and for all Christians to persevere faithful to the very end. This morning, we're only going to consider the introduction to this letter, these first five verses, but these verses are vital to the whole, because in the very introduction, what Paul does is lay a solid gospel foundation as the basis for all the exhortations to Timothy and the church in Ephesus to persevere in gospel ministry, even through suffering for the sake of Christ to the end. So there's two things I want us to see. First, we'll see the goal in the greeting, verses 1 and 2. And then lastly, or secondly, the grace in the gratitude in the Thanksgiving section in verses 3 to 5. So let's start with the goal in the greeting. And you know in Paul's epistles, his greeting follows a customary threefold structure. First, it's the sender, and then the recipients, and then a greeting or blessing. And when you study the letters of Paul, you see that there are slight variations, slight differences in these greetings in his different letters. And these variations are important because they introduce often a key theme that sets the tone for the whole letter. So that's what we're going to do is first notice some of the regular features and then consider the variation in this letter to Timothy. So first, think about the sender. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul often begins his letter speaking about his calling as an apostle. Apostle, you remember, is someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. They saw his resurrected body personally. And Paul had this privilege, you remember, in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute Christians, the Lord Jesus appeared to him, knocked him down, as it were, and brought him to himself. The apostles are part of the foundation of the church, along with the prophets. They were those who were for a period of time on the earth. There are, at this point, no living apostles on the earth today, though, of course, they are living in heaven. What is Paul doing? He's emphasizing the fact that he's an apostle. And he's saying that it was not by his own doing, but it's according to what? To the will of God. Again, he's emphasizing that it's the sovereignty of God that called Paul. It was Christ who appointed Paul. This is not something, some kind of position that he took upon himself. But his authority as an apostle 
comes from God. But you might be wondering, why does Paul do that in this letter? Why does he emphasize his apostleship in this most personal and intimate of letters in the New Testament written to his beloved Timothy? And here's part of the reason. Because it's not merely an informal letter. As we work our way through it, we'll see that Paul gives to Timothy many commands and instructions. Like chapter 1, verse 6, fan into flame the gift of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Or chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Paul is speaking these commands to Timothy, not merely as a friend, not merely on his own authority, but under the authority of Christ. But it's also a reminder that this letter is not only for Timothy, but it was to be read to the church in Ephesus, indeed to every church throughout church history. We know that clearly, just like we saw at the end of 1 Timothy, the last words, grace be with you, the word you is plural, grace be with you all. The letter was for the whole church. And it's a reminder to the church that what Paul says here is not merely his words, but the word of Christ. And so this is a letter ultimately from Christ to us. And who's the receiver then? Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Now in 1 Timothy, he was called my true child in the faith. Here in this description of Timothy, uh, in the faith is dropped off, but it's certainly still implied. Because what does it mean that Timothy is Paul's child? He's not his biological child, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Timothy is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. It points to how Timothy most likely came to faith. That in part, at least, it was through the instrumentality of Paul's preaching. You remember how Paul, on his first missionary journey, he goes down to Crete, but then he comes up to Antioch, Pisidian, and then over to Lystra and Derby. And Timothy was there in Lystra, Derby area. And Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, the good news. Timothy believed, trusted in Christ as his Savior. Not only this, we know later that on Paul's second missionary journey, before he goes over to Macedonia, he makes his way through Asia Minor, and he stops again in Lystra and Derby. And Timothy, at that point, has grown in the faith, so much so that the brothers and sisters in the church there commend Timothy to Paul. And what does Paul do? He takes Timothy under his wing. And Timothy then, from that point, accompanies Paul on both his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. We find that he is often sent by Paul as a trusted apostolic delegate to represent him to the various churches that he planted. Like in Macedonia, we see in Acts chapter 19. He even traveled with Paul when he's coming back to Jerusalem. When he's arrested for the first Roman imprisonment, Timothy is there with him. And when you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, you find so often in those initial greetings that Timothy is also there with Paul when he's writing. It's a letter to the Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. And you notice some of those letters were written when Paul was first imprisoned in Rome, what we often call his prison epistles, like Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And what that means is that Timothy was with Paul 
in his first Roman imprisonment. And then we saw when we went through 1 Timothy that Paul had commissioned Timothy to stay in Ephesus. There's a bond, you see, between Paul and Timothy, a bond of trust and of mature and mutual love and respect for one another in Christ Jesus. Through their union with Christ, they were bound to one another. And in their service to Christ together, they had grown in godly love for one another. And so this is the one who's the primary recipient, Timothy, his beloved child. But then there's the blessing, a blessing that we're familiar with, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, which is God's kindness to the undeserving, Peace, which is God's rest for the restless, shalom. But in between is mercy, God's compassion for the weak. And it's interesting that Paul only adds mercy in his greetings to Timothy. In all the letters to the churches, it's grace and peace. But when he's writing to Timothy, he adds mercy as well. C.H. Spurgeon said this, the office of the Christian ministry is of so weighty and responsible a character that the man who rightly fills that honorable position not only needs the grace and peace that are necessary for all believers, but that he must in addition have the special supply of mercy. Truly, no one needs mercy more than the preacher of mercy. And so you see the blessing given. But what's the main difference in this particular um, salutation and all the other letters that Paul writes. It's that little phrase there in verse one where Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And here you see is the whole goal in the greeting, the end of it all. The whole purpose of all that Paul has been doing, life in Christ Jesus. And isn't it astounding that Paul, in the midst of being in a dungeon, about to die, his whole focus is on life in Christ. Life that has been promised in the gospel. That we who are sinners under the condemnation and wrath and curse of God who deserve eternal damnation and death can escape death through the work of Christ, through believing in the promise of what he has done for all who will believe in him. And as Christians then, when we place our faith in Christ, we experience this eternal life now in our souls And we look forward to when it will be consummated, not only in our souls, but soul and body at the return of Jesus Christ. And here, beloved, is one of the great keys of persevering to the end, keeping your eye fixed on the goal of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Paul does this at the very end of this letter in 2 Timothy 4. He says this in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. His eyes on the goal. And so I ask you this morning, in the midst of 
the trials, the opposition that you face both without and within, what are you focusing upon? What are you thinking about? What are you meditating upon? Are you meditating upon the difficulties itself? Are you meditating upon your own meager resources in yourself? Or do you remember the sure promises that are ours in Christ Jesus? The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. As we sang about earlier, I will stand on every promise of your word. So you see the goal of the greeting, eternal life in Christ Jesus. But then there's the grace and the gratitude. You can see in verses 3 to 5, the next typical part of Paul's letter is a section of thanksgiving. And that's what we see here. And Paul gives thanksgiving to God as he remembers three things. Notice first, thanksgiving to God as Paul remembers Timothy in prayer. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul is overflowing with thankfulness to God as he thinks of Timothy. And he thanks God for Timothy, for the privilege of the relationship that he has with Timothy. But he doesn't just stop with nice thoughts, but he turns his remembrances into prayers of thanksgiving and intercession for Timothy. And it's not just once or twice or on occasion. He says it's constant, it's consistent prayer for Timothy. It's both night and day. It's a reminder that Paul himself had a daily pattern of praying, times set aside. You can think, for example, of the pattern of saints of old, like Daniel. You remember how Daniel, when he was in Babylon, three times a day, he would pray morning, afternoon, evening. He would go up into his room, there on the balcony, open the window and face towards Jerusalem. And he would pray to the Lord. Paul also had set times to pray night and day, to pray to the Lord, bringing his petitions, his praise, his thanks, because he knows that his life comes from this vital connection with the Lord, and he's utterly dependent upon him, and so he communes with him through prayer. And every single time he prays, he prays for Timothy. Have you ever thought, of how one of the great means that God uses for your perseverance is the grace of prayer from one another? That part of the way that Timothy is actually able to persevere is because Paul prays for Timothy? That part of the way your pastors, your elders, your deacons are unable to persevere is because of your prayers for us? That part of the way that you are enabled to persevere is because of your prayers for one another? That this is one of the great means by which the grace of endurance is given to us? Are we being faithful to pray for one another to persevere? It's an important lesson from this first aspect of Paul's thanksgiving. But I also want you to notice something else from verse 3. He says that he's one who serves God, as did his ancestors, with a clear conscience. 
Paul's saying, I've served God faithfully and kept my conscience clear. I have sought to do what God has called me to do, daily repenting and trusting in Christ. And here I want to give a word especially to those of you who either desire to enter the ministry or those of you who are elders, deacons, leaders in our church. One of the most important things that you can do in order to persevere is to make a practice of keeping a clear conscience. Sadly, I've seen many other ministers that have stopped keeping a clear conscience. That is, they stop keeping short accounts. And when they stop doing this, they began to go off the rails, and many go far astray. Now, let's be clear. Your leaders in this church are still people who sin. We still have remaining sin. But the question is, what do you do when you sin? Are you quick to repent? Are you quick to go to the person whom you sinned against and seek to be reconciled? Are you quick to go to the Lord and to have a clear conscience before him because you confess your sins and you repent and turn from them and you receive again and afresh the cleansing of the blood of Christ? It's the only way and one of the main means by which we as servants of Christ will persevere to the end. It's true for all of us, but let's remember this letter is first pointed to Timothy, and in that sense, to leaders in Christ's church. So you see the thanksgiving of God as Paul remembers Timothy in prayer. But then you also see thanksgiving to God as Paul remembers Timothy's tears. Notice verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled With joy. As Paul prays for Timothy, he remembers Timothy and he remembers the tears streaming down Timothy's cheeks. This likely refers to the last time that they saw one another in person. Perhaps it was when Paul was arrested for that second time. And this speaks of the depth of their relationship and their true love for one another. You see the depth of their relationship displayed again as Paul says not once but twice in this letter near the end, do your best to come to me soon. You see, he wants Timothy to come and to be with him in the final moments that he has on this earth for Timothy to be there that they could actually have fellowship face to face so that he would be filled with joy, the joy of fellowship with this dear brother in Christ. And beloved, here again we see another of the great means that God has given to us in order to enable us to persevere. And what is that means? It's the means of one another. The means and the call to us to have true biblical friendship and fellowship. That we would love one another that we would serve together with one another, that we would encourage one another, that we would be of one heart and mind together, having the mind of Christ together. Listen to what Joel Beakey and Michael Haken write about biblical friendship. Friendship is one of the primary means God uses to strengthen his people. If our generation of believers gives little thought to this marvelous vehicle of divine grace, we will be the poorer for it. 
Timothy's friendship with Paul was a means by which God sanctified the younger man, giving him an ever-increasing richness of thought about God and the gospel and an ever-growing desire for holiness and conformity to Christ. And Timothy also was a great blessing to Paul, so much so that this is the man that he wanted to be with him. Even though he's probably 20 years his younger, this is his closest friend on earth. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it's so vital that you be intimately connected to a local church as a member of a church, not just a pew sitter, not just an occasional Sunday goer, but vitally connected to the body of Christ where you can be known and know one another. And beloved, hear me. We are called to be those who are vulnerable with one another, to speak into one another's lives from the word of God. This is vital. This is a gift. This is grace that God has given to us, the grace of godly fellowship, of biblical friendship. And hear me, it's not enough even merely to be a church member. This is a call to develop true and deep friendships. You've heard the saying, well, you know, I might love them, but I don't like them. That's not biblical. You're called to have real, genuine friendships with the people of God. These are the people you will be spending eternity with. Now, that does not mean that you will have the same degree of friendship with everyone in the church. After all, Jesus had the 12, and within the 12, he was closer to the three, and within the three, he was closest to John. So we're not saying, I'm not saying that you'll have the same degree of fellowship and friendship with everyone. But are you pursuing greater friendship with everyone? That's your brother and sister in Christ, given your place and station. That means that we have to actually spend time together beyond just Sunday morning and evening. That means we need to serve together. That means we need to build trust together. And this is vitally important, not only for church members. This is vitally important for church leaders, that we as elders and deacons Develop our friendships as well. So, beloved, let us not be those who neglect this vital means. Let us thank God for the fellowship that God has given to us. And let us press further in and farther up in the biblical friendships that he gives. You see, the thanksgiving to God as Paul remembers Timothy's tears. But the last thing. Is thanksgiving to God as Paul remembers Timothy's sincere faith. Notice verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is the main grace that Paul wants us to think of, yes, remember the grace of prayer, yes, remember the grace of fellowship, but here is the main grace that Paul is focusing upon, the grace of faith. 
You remember what our catechism says about faith. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is a grace. It's a gift that God gives to us. We cannot muster it up on our own. God must implant it in us. And it is this grace that saves us because it connects us to Jesus Christ, who is eternal life. And Timothy is one who has, Paul says, sincere faith. Sincere faith. Genuine faith. It's not a fickle faith. It's not a fair-weather faith, but a sincere faith. He truly trusts in Jesus Christ, in the promises of God. He truly rests on Christ alone for salvation. And Paul cannot help but thank God for the faith that he gave to Timothy because God is the one who gave it to him. And if God gives him this faith, then nothing can destroy it. And here is the gospel foundation for all of our perseverance because we have faith from God. No matter if Satan, no matter if your own sin, no matter if this world tries to destroy your faith, they will not succeed because you have genuine faith from God. You will always persevere. So we see Paul thanking God because he gave to Timothy sincere faith. Notice, Notice how Paul points out that the faith that Timothy has is the same faith that was in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Why does Paul point this out? Why does he bring up Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice? Is he trying just to make Timothy feel all sentimental inside? No, Paul has a greater purpose than that. He's reminding Timothy that he has the same faith that he saw with his own eyes in his grandmother Lois, that he saw with his own eyes in his mother Eunice. And it's likely that at this point that Paul's writing, both his grandmother and mother have passed on. And what he saw was that they endured. This is the same reason that Paul makes that passing comment back in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. It's a reminder that this faith that they have is not just something new or recent, but it is the same as the Old Testament faith in the coming Messiah. And it's a faith that our ancestors in the faith had. All that had gone before. And he's bringing these things up because he wants to remind Timothy and the church that this faith is the same faith that all the saints of old had as well. And you know what they did? They persevered to the end. He's saying, Timothy, you saw, you saw your grandmother persevere in faith to her last dying breath. I, Paul, know that Abraham, our great father in the faith, persevered to the end. That means that you and I, as we have the same faith, we too will persevere to the end. It's examples of what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, Samuel, David, and more than we can name, they persevered to the end. By faith, 
Beloved, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and more than that, we can fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us throw off the sin that clings so close, that so easily entangles, and let us run with what? Endurance. Endurance to the very end. This is the foundation, the grace in this gratitude, the grace of faith. The question I leave you with is this, do you have this sincere faith, the genuine article in Jesus Christ as your only Savior? Or just a pretended faith? You're playing at Christianity. You come to church, you're here this morning, but you don't really believe. If you don't have a sincere faith, you don't have saving faith at all. But the good news is, if you don't, you can cry out to God and say, Lord, give me such sincere, true faith. A faith that receives and rests upon Jesus for salvation. And dear believer, do you actually stop and thank God for the sincere faith that he's given to you? Do you pray thanking God for the sincere faith that he's given to your pastors, elders, and deacons? Do you pray thanking God for the sincere faith that he's given to your brothers and sisters in this church? Church, do we pray for pastors in other churches to have a sincere faith? Do we pray for one another, fellowship with one another, and encourage each other in our faith to press on to the very end? That's what my brother-in-law's father had, Jeff Clayton. He was an elder the church there in Matthews, North Carolina, where Kevin DeYoung is the pastor. And he had a family of believers around him. Jeff Clayton passed into glory on New Year's Day, having persevering faith in Christ to the very end. As his obituary states, Jeff was known for saying that people tend to focus on the first hundred years of their lives on earth without giving thought to the trillion-plus years they will be living after death. As friends and family frequently heard him say, for those who place their faith in Christ, the best is yet to come. And he died believing that. Oh, how precious is sincere faith in our great and glorious Savior. Let us press on in faith. And as we do, we will be filled with joy and hope, knowing that nothing will destroy Christ's church and we will endure to the end. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we confess so often we feel the weakness of our own faith. But we thank you that you give to us these means of grace to be blessed by your Spirit, to increase and strengthen our faith in our great and glorious Savior. Work, O Holy Spirit, by this word. This morning we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.